Hello, this is Coffee Dave once again, bringing you the second part of Only Small Actors. In the first portion, we learned of an awards program for bit actors in movies and television, which is being formed by Seymour Weintraub. Seymour's wife is an accomplished artist named Bitsy Blaney. The second personage in our group is Byron Bannister, a director, born Peter Polypopoulos, but his name has been changed. The third person in our group of players is Albert Coffin, and his career is dead. Uh, Albert, unfortunately, sounds exactly like Gregory Peck, and sadly does not look anything like him, so not only is he not able to appear as himself in any particular movies except for one recently filmed by Byron. But he's being sued by the Peck estate who figures that Albert is basically doing an impersonation of Peck when he uses his voice. And finally, the last person in our group is a lovely young lady who looks exactly like Louise Brooks. We shall now proceed with the second part of Only Small Actors. 9. Barnabies After and SAG are going through their databases and will run the result against critic reviews and see what kind of list they can come up with. At that point, it's going to be mostly hands-on. The citations will be reviewed and the ones with the most positive mentions will be pulled and those viewed by committees for comedies and drama. A final four or five selected in each category and the general membership will review a DVD of the performances to see at home and then we'll vote. The votes get tabulated and we present them at the awards dinner. Bitsy nodded at Seymour. What about log rolling? Oh, I doubt it. Not much economic interest for the production companies to flog their candidates and the players, except for the stars doing cameos, are unlikely to influence the proceeding through lobbying. They were having lunch at CSI LA. Bitsy, a can of tuna on greens and Seymour strips of poached chicken on a bed of icebergs strewn with water chestnuts, bamboo shoots, scallions, and a few peanuts. The dressing, also scant, made mainly of peanut oil with rice wine vinegar and a dash of black sesame seeds. They both sipped unsweetened iced tea. He looked around. At least the place kept its inspiration constant. The joint was an L.A. cop bar that changed its name and decor in accordance with whatever was popular that season on the small screen. He and Bitsy avoided it in the days when Magnum P.I. was in vogue. The Trader Vickish cuisine turned them both off. For their first date, they chose it to meet for drinks and dinner. Then it was called Barnaby's. He arrived at her place to pick her up since they met before and she did not find him to be at all threatening. She offered him a passable glass of white wine while she went to do something womanly he perused a bookshelf displaying a substantial number of livres francaises, including Samuel Beckett in the original. 
He heard the sound of panting from the bedroom and through the partially open door scrambled a nondescript bitch with one ear pricked up and the other down. No, D.D., come here. The mutt stopped on a dime and swiveled around to her mistress. I should have warned you. I'm a sucker for strays. I found her skulking in an alley in South Central on a field trip for an urban installation. I never saw a more flea-bitten dog. She reminded me of a bum, a literary bum, I guess. Literary? She grinned at him. She would let him guess. Their next dog was Gogo. Lucky followed. When Lucky went to doggy heaven, he knew, despite its female sex, the next was destined to be Pozzo, and then Boy. They went to the joint and he ordered the 12-ounce burger, rare, topped with Swiss, and she looked at him with wild surmise and a degree of despair, then pointedly asked for crumbed cod on a bed of wilted arugula. He wolvered down his with a liter of bass and looked as if he was going to order another, this time raw, but instead he opted for a slice of apple pie with a chunk of cheddar and coffee with whipped cream and a tot of bushmills on the side. She almost gave him up at that point, spotting an incipient pot belly on the fellow and wondered if he was worth the effort or would he end up just another American male thicketing in the middle cheering TV sports and keeling over with a coronary at 55. Didn't she have enough beefsteak-chomping Irish Americans in her life? When he dropped her off, she asked him up. Dee Dee liked him. That was a little something. Picking up her South Central sketchbook, Seymour leafed through the pages slowly. He reached the Pieta and lingered a long long time, his head down. Her sharp eye at last saw the tear that he had ineffectively tried to obscure with a brush of his hand. She gently took the sketchbook from him. Then she leaned down and kissed him. Hard. Chapter 10. Botch. He had been right, of course. It had been his conception, writing and casting. Show, not tell. There was a yawning gulf in the center of the film, even if no one else would comment on it. He knew what was absent. It was like losing a filling. Your tongue everlastingly explored the tiny crevasse, the unseen imperfection. He woke, thinking about it, and his last thoughts before sleep were of little Albert Coffin as blind date number three. He wrote the narration, and Harris read it over some digitally darkened views of the city that changed them from gladsome to melancholy. It worked, sort of. The Sundance folk liked it, and it got a decent distribution deal. Only he knew what might have been. The more he thought of it, the more upset he became. The family's detestation of lawyers did not miss a generation. That suit was bought by the Peck estates, who didn't care to be bought off, and Coffin refused to pay for rights that he did not think he needed to purchase. After all, he had sounded that way since his voice changed. 
Byron spoke informally with one of the opposition law team. It's not personal, it's only business. Meaning they gave him the business, a bystander to the suit he had been injured too, or at least his baby. Byron wanted revenge. He wanted to use his daddy's Cretan dagger, but thinking about it, decided his fleshy one would suffice and not bring the very definite possibility of jail time. Candy Krakauer was not his type, but Byron was certainly hers. There was a reason that he had such a strong appeal to some of the masters at Harriston, and when he first saw a portrait of his namesake, he understood. The image was close enough that he wondered if the plastic surgeon who addressed his wounds had not a Byron fixation too. The only thing that bird had not given him was a club foot. Herman Krakauer was the partner ostensibly at the head of the cease and desist, but Byron knew he had not pushed the paper or done the research. That was the task of recently graduated law school drudges toiling 80 hours a week for the improbable chance of making partner. More likely they would be used like crack whores and at the end of five years look in the mirror to find their dreams shattered and their diet consisted of shit sandwiches. Byron was not interested in beating peons, however. His genetic lineage was not lords or ladies, but peasants. And as beautiful as Byron was, the blood in his veins coiled out for primitive justice. He decided to screw his enemies quite literally. Byron went to his medicine cabinet and checked his stock of Cialis. It was time to put some notches on his Cretan dagger. Chapter 11. Broadway Brother Benedict. Albert Coffin was now living in an apartment, not a house, his income having disappeared along with his part as blind date number three. He still received the occasional residual check, but the new work dried up and he was looking for a job like any other tyro in show business. Broadway brother Benedict was realistic with aspirants to the church of showbiz. Get a marketable skill that'll take you through the lean times and expect there to be plenty of them. Benedict had been in the business called show before he began to attend God's work. He spent at least a decade waiting tables, bagging groceries, driving cabs, and twice during that time he trod the boards for a paying audience. The parts were small, and the shows were gobblers that ran 17 performances between them. At that point, he had a vision of Christ that might have been due to semi-starvation suffered between day jobs or perhaps noxious fumes in the rat hole he was sharing with several other aspiring thespians. Whatever the cause, he presented himself to the Christian brothers and was accepted. He never looked back or regretted his decision, and as a kind of treat, the deity put him to work in a high school where he soon had the job of running the drama club. Straight play in the autumn and a musical in the spring. For a boys' school, there are only a certain number of casts that are all male. Generally, military works like the Cane Mutiny, Court Martial, and of course, Twelve Angry Men. But at least he could do them over and over again every five years or so. 
More problematic was the spring production, but he had the bright idea of working with Sister Hesione from St. Bridget's. The combined clubs did the musicals solving the uncomfortable Charlie's Aunt aspect of doing Seven Brides for Seven Brothers with an all-male cast. Albert Coffin never struck Brother Benedict as leading man material. He had the aspect of a character actor. As a ninth grader, his voice was a reedy soprano, and he fit the part, small as he was, of Winthrop Paru in The Music Man. Until the third performance, that is, when he experienced a sudden vocal change in the middle of a reprise of Gary, Indiana. He started as a boy soprano and ended as a bass. Well, he got the most laughs in the production, but was replaced in the final performance. After that, he was a shoe-in for the heavies in the spring and the fall. His Captain Quig was much admired, and his Judd Fry in Oklahoma much praised. Still, he never really looked the part, did he? Of course, in amateur productions, that could be overlooked. Benedict had been on a spiritual retreat in the hinterlands, away from all media and on his knee bones, praying, and if not praying, then meditating on the meaning of Christ's suffering. After returning for the fall semester, he looked into the back issues of Variety and The Hollywood Reporter. He gave them up for Lent, too, to see what he missed. When he saw the articles obscured away in the back pages, he went to a cabinet in his office and packaged some things, sending them to Los Angeles. Albert Coffin received the package, somewhat delayed by his change of address, with a note from his favorite teacher. 12. Bewitched by Baby Cakes Born second. In the local dialect, that's what his name meant. Privarti meant born first, and their literalist father named him Suvarti, born second. He lost the race by mere minutes, but what he had lost Moreover, the brothers did not resemble each other at all. His great-aunt, the witch, said that he must be some sort of changeling, and it set a pattern for a childhood of, if not neglect, then disregard. It was as if he was not in the room at all. He felt invisible at family gatherings where Privarti's accomplishments were extolled and his ignored. Perhaps he was a changeling, an elf child, someone inserted into the family, or rather into his mother's womb. When he grew older and had the funds, he did a genetic evaluation and found, indeed, though he had a full share of his mother's DNA, of his father's, he had not a wit. His mother must have fucked the rice man. The rice man cometh, and one of the bitch's eggs she probably popped a few each month, was penetrated by a sperm from the interloper. He grew in the dark with his half-brother, who beat him out the door and into his non-father's love. Suvarti spent all his waking hours and dream time, too, attempting to defeat Privarti in any effort. In school, in business, in romance, in creative theft, it meant nothing unless he could best his half-brother. They both had three wives, each more beautiful than the last, all darkly compelling, 
all with the hourglass figures seen in erotic temple paintings and stroke books. Each was poised for a fourth wife, and each had a specific idea of his prize. He saw the photos. Privarti had a source in the United States on retainer to supply him with what he most delighted in. He stepped out of the office to go to the set of his current interminable musical to oversee a Lissom's extra costume change. He bragged that he would soon be getting some poontang, insisting that the word was of Indian origin, coming from the tasty babes of Pune. Well, didn't Madras shirts come from Madras? He would certainly give Suvarti a glowing account of his latest conquest upon his return. Suvarti did what he always did in his brother's absence. He attempted to find something that his brother desired and scheme to get it for himself. Scripts, girls, cars, even vintage costumes from Hollywood musicals. He looked on the desk and found in plain sight a file marked Baby Cakes. Was his brother into kitty porn? Suvarti would draw the line at that. Instead, when he opened the file, he found two girls. One, a dark-eyed, dark-haired Huri, who reached out and grabbed him by the throat. He could not breathe for a moment, and his heart thudded irregularly in his breast. He looked at the other photos. A different woman, surely, the lower body even more intoxicating than the upper, and her womanly triangle so fair. Then he found the final full study. Surely a photographer's montage? Were both women one? He thought he might expire on the spot, and she looked familiar. Where had he seen that face? He remembered some film festival, a German language thing. He recalled falling asleep somewhere between Heisenberg and Himmler, only to be woken by a carnal gasp from the audience. He viewed the object of mass lust, a coal-eyed beauty staring from the screen and producing in him the same cardiac irregularity as he felt now. She wasn't a dream. He looked at the photo again. No, this was the face. Privarti entered. Ah, brother, I see you found the picture of my possible fourth wife. 13. Bust. Bitsy was aware of Seymour's work hours. The closer to a production, the longer the time, and the more frequent the phone calls about this or that detail. She did not mind. It gave her an excuse to remain in the workroom, bending metal, making forms, applying plaster or clay, and seeing her visions migrate from brain to being, from neurochemistry to physical presence. They had met and began to date at the inception of the South Central series on which her early reputation and notoriety was based. Some found the solid, realistic figures offensive, not to speak of racist. She answered by asking whether they expected to see blue-eyed blondes in that setting. Seymour told her to avoid interviews and let the work speak. The public and the art world could accept or reject them. 
Was she looking for popularity? Then she was in the wrong field and her sensibility is trampled by any mean spirit and son of a bitch who could get her goat. And then he hugged her. Her family liked him, sort of. He liked them. But as he only had an aunt, his affection toward them was perhaps feelings long in need of expression. Both his parents went off the deep end of the drug pool in the 60s, and he was essentially mailed to Aunt Frida, a maiden aunt, a lesbian, before lesbians were trendy. She had no desire for children, but took Seymour as her own. She cared for him, cleaned him, cooked for him, wiped his nose, tended his bruises, and sent him off to school with a healthy sack lunch. When time came, she paid for his college and survived the lupus long enough to see him graduate. A month later, he buried her. Bitsy found a photograph album, the record of Seymour's young life, and asked if she could borrow it. He was puzzled, but said sure. And then they went on to the other topic of the greater importance, like Seymour's death wish diet. She accused him of being a carboholic and that he should join a branch of Carboholics Anonymous. He needed those 12-step meetings to encourage abstinence from refined sugar, white flour, and food fried in deep fat. He countered that if there was a god, as Bitsy insisted, and if the god's creation was good, then donuts were the apex of such good works, and it was an insult to the deity to avoid them. Bitsy explained that she was a Manichaean, and believed that there were two aspects of creation at war with one another. Donuts represented the dark side, green vegetables, the light. So, she said, if you want to go to heaven and, incidentally, sleep with me, you better eat your greens. He ate his greens. He also persuaded a producer on a Sunday morning magazine show in L.A. to look at Bitsy's installation, and a piece followed two weeks later on the anniversary of their whirlwind meeting. They sat and watched the program together. At its conclusion, she lugged a heavy box tied with a festive ribbon to him. Inside was a bust of Aunt Frida. It is currently on loan to the Whitney Museum of American Art. 14. Bonking. Byron's stock rose progressively with each release, and even though the last was more modest of a success in financial terms, it had indeed made its investment and then some. The Chop Shop franchise was his baby too, and though he promised the third installment, a prequel, as a condition for the making of Serial Lover, Tom Tondaleo and Carl Singatu had yet not come up with a convincing trope as to the origin of the chop shop and its horrors. As far as Byron was concerned, the origin was pimply oversexed teenagers who got their jollies watching busty girls and feckless guys being sliced up by deformed post-nuclear maniacs. How his writing duo would ever explain this farrago was beyond him, but at this point Byron didn't give a damn. He was more concerned with getting herpes genitalius into Candy Krakauer's crotch and consequently into Herman's hosen. They met twice before, once at a charity event and the second time at a post-Oscar bash. At their first meeting, Candy ravished him with her eyes. 
At the second meeting, he thought the wench was going to throw him on the buffet table and eat him rather than Wolfgang Puck's presentation. She licked her lips and favored him with single entendre. For his part, he had been pursuing a pair of twins, one of whom seemed willing and the other freaked out by his threesome suggestions. He thought his advances were subtle, certainly not Candy's crudity about him coming up to her condo to see her Bitsy Blaney bar relief. He was not aware that Blaney had done any. He was in the auditorium when she received her Brookhaven, and when they showed photos of her work, he was enormously moved by that pieta. Hardly Michelangelo's, but the starkness of mother and child with the Crips blue, Virgin Mary's color, of course, and the blood's red, the only colors on the ashen statue of the screaming woman holding her drive-by murdered child. It was a powerful piece, very masculine, and then he checked himself. No, but really something a true artist like Blaney had to have balls, balls, to sculpt. Fuck, she deserved that award. He wondered if he could get the DVD out in time for them to consider Coffin for the Cutty. No one was going to nominate Byron for an Academy Award for the Chop Shop series, and Serial Lover, even if it had Coffin's part uncut, was too light an effort for consideration. Candy's weakness for all things bivalve was well known in certain circles, and the raw bar at Cats would be a particular draw for the creature. Last Friday, the Times food page had a listing of the best raw bars and the rarest of shellfish, and the place was second only to Vladimir's, and Candy wouldn't be caught dead in that joint since the Hamad brothers bought a controlling interest. He pulled his cell and called Meyer Lansky at reservations and heard the practiced accent of a method actor. The maitre d's of the place were given the names of Jewish gangsters, also in the payroll was Bugsy Siegel and Lepke Buchalter. The kitchen crew, all from Mexico, was known as the Purple Puebla Gang. Hello, Katz Deli, a thrave tradition since 57-56. Byron Bannister here, Meyer. I would like to have lunch at the Raw Bar. Is it very busy since that write-up? Oh, we can make room for you, Mr. Bannister. I'll save you a spot by Mrs. Krakauer, if that's okay. You know her, don't you? Oh, indeed I do. Indeed I do. 15. Beta. Since his foray into stand-up comedy, Albert Coffin received packages in the mail which had spurious return addresses. He became very careful. Gone were the days when he, with childlike enthusiasm, would gaily tear off the wrappings to see what a box held. After discovering a cache of human turds, a long-dead skunk, and bottles of a yellow liquid with labels indicating it was Chateau Pissoir, he was in no mood to find another nasty surprise, perhaps one with a fuse. Moving from his former house to this less-than-upscale locale, he traded fear of the mailman for fear of the neighbor. Still, the return address of his old school, in the name of Brother Benedict, quieted his qualms considerably, and he did not plunge the package into a bucket of water and ring up the cops. Instead, he opened it to find videotapes dating back to the antediluvian age when he was still in his minority and had no inkling of the darkly amusing fate God had in store for him. The missive from 
brother was succinct and ended with a prayer for his safety and hope for forgiveness from the Hebrews who he had offended. Albert thought of the dead skunk and murmured amen and crossed himself three times. A quick call to the Harris Agency and he was out of his door and into the 1997 Dodge Neon that had perforce replaced his leased Mercedes. Whatever could be stolen from his ride was. The radio gone within three hours of parking it and to make things worse, some enterprising local had stole the alarm too. Whoever stole the club left a note saying it was worth more than the car. Talk about rubbing in salt. Across town in safer confines, he parked it in the lot across from the building. The Harris had valet parking, but the disdain of their uniformed employee at his ride made Albert avoid the experience a second time. He knew what that man was thinking. I may have to run like hell if the INS comes around, but at least I've got a better ride than this turkey. He waited in the anteroom and read the reporter. An old animated feature of his was finally coming out on DVD. He checked the cast list. Baxter Bunny, read by Billy Baldwin. They had expunged him from yet another film. He looked down the list of releases for six months hence. Serial Lover would be out in the spring. He had little hope of his work seeing the light of day until this morning. He thought of Brother Benedict and began to pray for the first time since, while high on coke, he had accepted a motorcycle ride from Gary Busey. After the appropriate chastening time, the Harris's receptionist, whose British accent was as fake as her boobs, led him to Jack and Ben Harris. So you got some proof, I hear? Because if you don't have nothing to show the judge, you better be thinking about trade school. My cousin Minnie's boy, you know the one with the speech impediment? Got a nice job in computers. You ever think of computers, Albert? Albert had a sudden vision of a young Dustin Hoffman and someone saying the word plastics. He silently handed the package to Ben, who walked it over to the combo VHS DVD, and after a moment, he also said one word. Beta. 16. Betty B. Grandpa had been on the run all his youth, it seemed, first from the Nazis and then from the commies. Also, of course, there were the partisans of this or that religious tradition, and who could forget the ethnics? Those ethnics liked nothing better than a good cleansing, and by that they did not mean a sponge bath or even just cleaning your clock. No, said Grandpa, they wanted to clean you off the face of the earth and deposit your bones in a grave. A mass one, if they could work it out right. And had, it had been going on long before there were Nazis or commies. That's why he loved America so. As long as you had money to buy stuff, you were treated right. The only mass graves were in the backyards of serial killers, and they were relatively few and far between. At least he hoped. Young Betty, named for the star of Jezebel, not the bathhouse chanteuse, sat on Grandpa's lap, her beautiful blue eyes wide at his tales of hair, breath escapes, and terrifying adventures. Those ended after falling into the hands of some American soldiers who had drunkenly bumbled over the border. 
He got them back to the right side and realized the tales of baby-eating Americans had been exaggerated by his great-grandmother, who also told him that Jews wear those funny hats so they can hide their horns. When he came to America, after some farmer cousins in Kansas vouched for him, he found himself with a new nation and a traditional name, one which raised eyebrows and consternation when any of his new compatriots tried to pronounce it. The plethora of Z's and K's and W's, not to speak of at least two umlauts and even a tilde over a letter that was neither European nor Cyrillic, made his life hard. In the old country, everyone could pronounce his name, at least those who remained ethically uncleansed. Here, not so. So he legally shortened it. Unfortunately, there had been no movie palaces in his homeland, nor electricity for the most part. Thus, he was unaware of some cultural icons. He shortened his name to Boop. Well, that's the end of the second part of Only Small Actors. This is Coffee Dave, K-A-W-F-E-E-D-A-V-E. You can reach me at K-A-W-F-E-E-D-A-V-E, yahoo.com, if you wish to comment on this story or any of the other inclusions in this podcast. Next time, we will continue with part number three of Only Small Actors. Until then, goodbye.